Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and I'll be taking you on a journey to the world of martial arts and introduce listeners to some of the most aspiring and knowledgeable practitioners from around the world. Whether you're a seasoned martial artist or a curious beginner, or just enjoy hearing a great story, the Mind Sensei Podcast Down Under has something for everyone. So tune in, sit back, and let us take you on a journey through the world in martial arts. Ladies and gentlemen, honoured guests and martial arts enthusiasts, welcome to a special two-part episode of the Mind Sensei podcast. In this episode, we delve into the second part of a commemorative tribute to the indomitable Sigung Stephen Labowney. Part two not only deepens the exploration of Sigung Labowney's profound influence on the martial arts community, but also unveils a unique and heartwarming element. Our esteemed speakers, including our special Host Sifu Gary Swan and Simu D. Swan, John Sepulveda, will continue to share their personal reflections and stories, offering a further insights and enduring legacy of Sigung Labani's warrior spirit. However, before we embark on this journey, we have a rare treat for you. A moment from the 2014 Texas Bandera Camp, where Sigung Labani shared a story in his own words. The campfire story not only encapsulates the wisdom and humour that characterises Sigung Labani, but also serves as a testament to the shared camaraderie and experiences that bind the martial arts family together. The spark that ignited the creation of the Mind Sensei podcast can be traced back to a poignant moment at 2014 Texas camp, where Sigung Stephen Labani shared a captivating story in his own words by the campfire. This profound narrative filled with wisdom and humour resonated deeply with those in attendance planting the seeds of inspiration, the desire to preserve and share such rich personal insights from martial arts luminaries became the driving force behind the inception of the Mind Sensei podcast. This episode marks a significant return to that very campfire, allowing us not only to relive the special moment but also to honour the legacy of Sigung Labani by continuing the tradition of sharing stories that inspire, educate and unite the martial arts community. Steadily and prepare to be transported by the captivating narratives that unfold in part two of our special episode. Join us as we not only remember, but also celebrate the remarkable life of Sigung Stephen Labowney on the Mind Sensei podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, family, martial arts enthusiasts, welcome to a special episode of the Mind Sensei podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and today we have distinguished guests joining us, martial arts luminaries and close friends of Sigung Labowney. We welcome Sifu, Gary Swan, and Simu D. Swan, dedicated martial artists and people who share deep connection with Sigung Labowney. So welcome to the podcast. And thank you, Peter. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Peter. The honor's all mine. Before we begin, let me set the stage. Sigung Labani, arguably one of the most widely known Kempoists, embodied the true sense of warrior spirit. His impact on the martial arts community is immeasurable. Now I'll hand it over to Sifu Gary Swan and Simu D. Swan to guide us through the exploration of Sigung Labani's life and legacy. Thank you, Peter. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it's a privilege to be here today to share and remember. Senior Master Labounty was an extraordinary man. I've never known anybody quite like him. He was my teacher and my mentor for 54 years, also my friend. A great many people knew Seagong, but it was my privilege to have known Steve Labounty. We ran together along with Tom Kelly when we were in our 20s, and we did all the things that young men do. Suffice it to say, we had some memorable times. Seagong put his own unique brand on Ed Parker's Kempo. It was rough and tumble with no holes barred, and that was his way. If you were not willing to get hit hard from time to time, he would suggest you find another school. And a lot of people did. He taught hundreds of seminars, but he had very few personal students that stayed with him because he was just uncompromising. He had three underlying principles. They were train hard, hit hard, and keep it simple. And I pass on those precepts to my students. And he was a gifted speaker, and he had a unique ability to inspire those that came to him seeking knowledge. There are so many things that I will miss now that he's gone. I think what I'll miss the most is his sense of humor. Steve loved to laugh, and he was really good at it. His was spontaneous and hearty, and even in the midst of his most difficult struggles, and there were many, he kept a sense of humor at all times. Sigung Labouti's martial art training began in the early 60s with judo, and then later on under the Tracy brothers, who were at that time closely affiliated and aligned with Ed Parker. He became a national and an international champion, and he carried Mr. Parker's banner with pride wherever he went. Seagun was a protector by nature, and he spent over two decades in law enforcement. His last assessment was in the division that had investigated child abuse. And that was a dark chapter in his life. He never really quite covered from the experiences that he was exposed to, and I think that's what probably led to him retiring early. As we reflect on his life today, we'll explore the profound impact that he had on the Kempo family and his role as a founding member of the American Kempo Senior Council and the significance of the title Sigong, which holds a special meaning. In the Chinese martial arts, the model is similar to that of the family. Sifu in the Chinese martial arts means essentially father teacher. Simu is the female equivalent, or it can also mean Sifu's wife. And I use the title Sifu because this is the Chinese Kempo Karate Association, and we like to align ourselves with the traditional. And your older classmates in the Chinese martial arts referred to as Sihing, which means older brother. The younger classmates are Sidai. The senior classmates of your Sifu are referred to as uncle, Sibok. And of course, your teacher's teacher is Sigong, which is grandfather. Around 1972, I think it was, when Sigong passed over the presidency of the NCKK to me, 
uh, I suggested that he and Tom Kelly remain affiliated with us in the roles of senior advisors, and they were most agreeable to do that. And I also suggested that they take the title Seagong and Seabok, which I thought was appropriate, and they agreed to do that too. So that's how all that came about. Hi, Peter. I'm Deanne Swan. I am a student under Gary Swan. I've been training for about 42 years. I work with Gary at the school. We've been working together for 40 years, maybe even more than that. And I would like to say a few words about Seagung. Seagung was larger than life. Because he was, he, he pushed others to personal achievement. He demanded toughness and absolute seriousness on the mat, yet off the mat, he was personable and funny. One of my fondest memories is simply leaning in, listening to the humorous banter between Seagong and Gary that often took them back to their early days of training together. Seagong was as iron sharpens iron. He desired to sharpen the metal within a student. And this was especially seen at our Texas spirit camps, though not just at, at Texas camps. Toughness, dedication, perseverance, and hard training were the goals, ready or not, for those who pitched their tents for two days of intensive outdoor training. We ran to line up. We ran to classes. We ran everywhere. Counting off involved many push-ups as it was never done flawlessly. But Seagung, when he taught, had some hidden or veiled lessons. At least that's how I like to see it. He would send a class of 20 white belts racing up a hill with the goal of each person bringing back a rock. Our goal was simply not to be the last one back. When the rocks were piled, they would be assessed as one rock short and off we'd go. This time we ran with the goal of having one another's back. Seagong once picked out a black belt candidate and told him to go see if the river was wet. The candidate dutifully runs to the river, sees that the river is indeed flowing and runs back. Sir, the river is wet. Seagong simply looks at the candidate with a blank stare. The candidate turns back, jumps into the river, and returns dripping wet. Sir, the river is wet. This show-me-don't-tell-me lesson that we as teachers need to know was classic Seagung. This kind of discipline weeded people out. But Kempo was never meant for everyone, and Seagung uh, was not about compromise. For some, Kempo indeed becomes a way of life as Sifu's advanced class can testify. Many who are training with us have been training for 30 to 40 years. I'd like to close with a simple example of Seagung's humor. On the occasion that upper belts got together to share a meal, the protocol was that no one ate until Seagung took the first bite and pity the person that did. Seagung would raise his fork, as did the others, but just before taking a bite, he'd lower his fork and another thing and all forks would lower. Of course, this would go on with Seagung stopping just short of taking a bite, and it was always hilarious. Today, as we remember Seagung Labounty, not just as a martial artist, but as a man whose 
legacy continues to resonate in the hearts of those who have the privilege of knowing him. Join us as we delve into the rich tapestry of his life, stories, reflections, and insights that capture the essence of this extraordinary grandmaster. Thank you, Sifu, Gary Swan, and Simu D. Swan for your great introduction of Sigun Labani's memory and legacy, especially for you listeners that have heard and will know of Sigun Labani. This will hopefully provide some background to an icon in the Kempo world. For those listeners that are unaware, Stephen Sigun Labani was a principal motivation for the inception of the Mind Sensei podcast and how it actually got started. So stay tuned for an episode that will not only be a tribute to a martial arts icon, but surely enrich your understanding of martial arts and inspire you to pursue your own passions with unwavering dedication. I'm your host, Peter Taz, along with my co-hosts, Sifu Gary Swan and Simu D. Swan for the Mind Sensei podcast as we introduce excerpts from our previous interviews from our esteemed guests, friends of Sigun Labani. Sifu Gary Swan. In 1966, I took a break from the army after Vietnam, and I came home to Fresno and enrolled in some college classes. And every day I would drive down the road, going to school, and I would pass a Kempo Karate School. And one day I decided to and pop in there and see what that was all about. Tom Kelly was there sitting behind the desk, brand new brown belt. He'd been in the Marine Corps, and he and I hit it off right away and became very close friends. Steve Labounty was there. Ralph Castellanos was there. Tom Kelly, of course, was there. And a couple of years later, Huck Planus showed up. But it was a magical place for me. It was very different from what we have now with the modern martial arts schools. It was a very small, old place, no air conditioning, no heat. The lighting wasn't all that good. But nobody seemed to care because we were doing martial arts and we loved it. And everybody was really poor in those days. We didn't have any money, but we didn't care about that much either because we had a place to practice and we had extraordinary teachers. Steve Labounty and Ralph Castellanos were just, just extraordinary. And of course, Tom later on became more or less a legend in martial arts. And Huck Planus as well. We had times in those days. I think we were talking before that Sigung was your first teacher and probably your last teacher. He was my mentor, my teacher, and my friend for 54 years. He's a very interesting guy. His personality was just, <laughs> yes. just extraordinary. The confidence he had, the skill he had. I think his sense of humor is one of the things that I missed most about him now that he's, now that he's gone. And Steve loved to laugh, and he was good at it. And his was spontaneous and hearty. And even in the midst of all of the medical issues he went through and everything else, he never lost his sense of humor the whole time. 
Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't real good at running the school. He had several of them, but he was very good at seminars. He had hundreds of those, but he was just uncompromising. I mean, if you weren't willing to get hit hard occasionally, he would recommend that you go find another school, and a lot of people did. And things were very different in those days. But he had three underlying principles. Train hard, hit hard, and keep it simple. And I pass on those to my students. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. In Kempo, we have a tendency to make things more complicated than they need to be. I mean, that's all interesting to look at. Steve Labonte classified people as either fighters or dancers. And nothing wrong with being a dancer. It's great exercise. It's a lot of fun. You get in a fight, you're probably not going to be able to dance your way out of it. I think Mr. Lillard also brings it up as well. There's people that can do forms very nicely, like just, it's an, you know, they look like they're, they're painting. If you ever got right. into any trouble, they weren't the person that you wanted in behind you. There's always That's a rough right. and ready that you wanted. Talking about three points that Sigung was sort of always made you guys abide by and you pass it on to your school. And the principles that he taught were, were absolutely applicable to fighting. It was very difficult to convince people of that because, because everybody used to think there's a secret in the martial arts. There's a secret. I want to learn the secret of martial arts. And there is no secret. It's just it's just hard work over years and years and years, and you have to be willing to get hit. You have to be willing to get bloody. You have to be willing to knock down and get knocked down and get back up again. And a lot of people are just not willing to do that. And Steve Labonte had no patience with people like that. Tell me, sir, 1969, you were promoted to black belt and then you're offered an instructor's position in Phoenix, in Arizona. Right. Um, that was with Sigung. After that, Mr. Levani approached Mr. Parker and that started up the National Chinese Kempo Karate Association. That was an extraordinary happening. I was in Phoenix and I petitioned Mr. Parker to become a member of the IKKA. One of the rules in the IKKA is that you couldn't have two IKKA schools within a five-mile radius. And in Phoenix, Tom Connor had a Kempo school at the same time I did. And in fact, when I moved to Phoenix, he was not at all happy about that. So Mr. Parker was kind of between a rock and a hard place. I got along with Mr. Parker very well. But because of the rules and the Constitution, I could not be accepted as an IKKA school, so I decided, well, i got to start my own association then. So I called Steve Labonte, and I put it up to him. I said, you know, would you be willing to take the presidency of this association? He thought about it for a while, and he says, well, we have to talk to Mr. Parker about this. So we went down to Los Angeles to see Mr. Parker. We had lunch. We went to Bob's Big Boy restaurant there in Pasadena. And we sat there and we talked about it. We laid it out. And we told Mr. Parker what we wanted to do and what our vision was. I wanted, I wanted to add the classical martial arts 
into what we were doing. And to my astonishment, he was agreeable to that. For as far as I know, the NCKKA is the only offshoot uh, organization of the IKKA that Mr. Parker ever authorized. So that was a, an idea from yourself then, sir? Well, I was a first-degree black belt at the time. Steve Labonte was a third, or maybe a fourth. He was a fourth, but anyway, uh, I needed somebody with a little more clout. Sure. So he was the president of the association for several years, and then he turned it over to me. But there were, you know, there are just so many memorable moments. I think probably Tom Kelly's funeral was one. It's right up there. Bob White was there. John Sepulveda was there. Lee Wedlake. Steve Labounty and I were up on the up on the podium. Steve was delivering a eulogy for Tom, and I delivered uh, what's known as a military roll call, and Tom had requested that at his funeral. He'd been a Marine, and he never let anybody forget it, which is pretty, pretty typical for Marines. But all of the veterans and the currently serving servicemen that were there in the service rose to our feet, and, and they played taps, and we did a salute to Tom, and that was, that was a very, very emotional thing. What's taps? And taps is a bugle call yep. that uh, that occurs at the end of the day. It's also done for military funerals. But you call the roll. You call the roll of all the service members. They come to their feet and they play taps. We do a hand salute. And when I got to the end of the roll call, I called for Sergeant Thomas Kelly. No response. I called again, and Sergeant. Thomas Kelly, no response. And after the third time, the response from the one that's calling the name is that Sergeant Kelly has now departed this earth and is therefore relieved from duty. And my voice was cracking at the time. That was very difficult for me. But you'll start to make me tear up just listening to this. You know, I never even met the guy. <laughs> yeah, oh, he was—he was a wonderful human being, larger than life. Sifu Sean and Rebecca Knight. All the doors that we really wanted to go through, Seagung provided the opportunity for us. Uh-huh. You know, when I started training with Seagung in 2006, was when I had my first class with Seagung with Stephen Labounty. And then it wasn't long after that I was chasing him all over the country, doing seminars and asking him to be my teacher. And he would always say no, but the caveat was you can ask again later. So I kept showing up and then I kept taking classes and finally, he finally accepted. But testing for sixth degree underneath his lineage was the hardest test. I was promoted once more to seventh with Mr. Labounty, but the sixth degrees, I think for both of us were the, by far the hardest tests ever. Tell us a little bit about your sixth grading. If that, that, you're saying that was your hardest grading with Sigul. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, we tested separately. When I tested, there was one other person testing at the same time. And if you've ever seen the Seagung stare, oh man, it will cut you to the core. We, we had him sitting at the front with a big panel of people. He was putting us through it. We were doing self-defense techniques. We were doing basics. We were doing forms, back to self-defense techniques, back to basics. And it never seemed like anything we were doing was really making him happy. 
And I remember at one point in time, I was gassed and I thought I got nothing left. I'm, I'm hyperventilating just from the stress of like trying to live up to the moment for my teacher. And I do the five and I finish the five. I'm dripping sweat. And Seagung looks at me and he goes, do it again. And this time with a stance. And I thought I had nothing. So I do the five. It's acceptable for Seagung. And then I, I come back out and I do, well, uh, he has a spear set that he teaches, the Sakwan. And at this point in time, I'm like, you know, you, you kind of reach that point where you don't have any tension left in your body. You don't have any tension left in your heart or your mind. You're just going to give it all. And I ran Seagung Sakwan and I look at him and because he paused and I go again, Seagung. And he goes, no, that was perfect. Nice. So to me, in the moment, that was, I think, the biggest pat on the back I ever got from Seagung after I had to do the five all over again. That's, that's pretty cool. I, um, I ha- I'd have to say I haven't met a lot of high-ranking. We don't have many high-ranking females in, in our country. We talk about females in Kempo. Yeah, I think you move fantastic. I think you're, you're representing the other half quite well. Hats off to you. So, yeah. yeah. You mean no such compliment like, like that. <laughs> uh, but that being said, when I tested for six, we had a huge panel and it was just me. I remember distinctly him ruffling a bunch of papers while I just stood there in a, in a ready position, you know. Then the first question he asked me, we'd never discussed it. He goes, what's the, the sixth degree, the Japanese term for sixth degree black belt? I, I was looking at him and it seemed like an eternity passed. And my wife is, she has no idea what the answer is. And I, I, I remember getting an email from him where he, he wrote it down. And I, so I say Rokudan and he's like, yes. And I'm thinking, thank the Lord. I didn't just fail on the first <laughs> question. You know? Nice. I'm writing that down in case I get us. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of times when you come up in an organization, you learn a lot of what to do, and then you learn a lot lot of what you don't want to duplicate, a lot of what you don't want to echo. We kind of had our feet underneath us after doing that for quite some time, and that's when we branched out. And uh, 2005 is when we created our own organization, and 2006 is when we met Seagung. Okay. So what was the organization called back in 2005? Was it still Knight Method Campo, or was that a new thing? American Institute of Kenpo that we founded then, and we ran with that banner for a while. And all of our uh, mentors, like Mr. Labounty was telling, because he, he has, you know, Seagung's patch is, is right here. And, and it says Seagung Labounty's, you know, American Kenpo or Stephen Labounty's American Kenpo. And he, he said, put your name on it, put your name on it. And we didn't really want to do that at first. And then finally, after Mr. Sepulveda told us the same thing, Mr. Wedlake gave us the same advice. And Mr. White, obviously, he's got his name on it. So we we're hard to to you know be taught, but eventually it seeps in, and and we finally put our name on it, and now that's that's the that's what our logo is now is Night Method Kempo. That was Sagung in two thousand six. That's got to be an interesting story. Like we're going to have to hear about that. Like I've only met Sigung a handful of times, but I know that 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 is not an easy thing. So we were just opening the doors of the Kempo community, and I had spoken with Ed Parker Jr. when I left Mr. Packer's organization, and he had referred me to Sean Kelly out of Florida, and so I flew down to Florida for a big camp that he was putting on, and he had like a who's who of you know seniors of Kempo in the in the school, and one of them he had Frank Trejo and Joe Lewis was there, not not specific to Kempo as much, but you know big names. We had Larry Tatum was there, and a whole bunch of others, but Seagung's class was the one that just stuck with me. And I remember doing like rough and tumble drills and they were, I mean, I was dripping sweat. It was just, 
it was grueling. And we left the class. I remember distinctly, we were walking down the sidewalk to go get like a snack. And I, I looked at Rebecca and I said, that man could be my teacher. It wasn't long until we were hot on his tail to try to get you know, anything we could to get another lesson, get another class, and then eventually, you know, become part of that lineage. Nice. And Rebecca, same for you? Or... Well, I might add, I didn't, I was not happy with Seagung the first time I met him. <laughs> He picked on me in his class. And little did I know at the time, that is how that's his teaching tool. And that's what he does. Um, but he had me come into the middle of the group and asked me to grab. First of all, I had a load of patches on my uniform. So he he started there and he goes, could you fit one more patch on that uniform? <laughs> my feathers. And he tells me to grab his wrist. I reach out to do the standard crossbody. And he goes, the other wrist. So I do the other hand. And he looks at everyone else in the room and he goes, ugh women. Oh, by then I was on fire. <laughs> and the problem was I was doing what Seagung hated the most. I was being sweet. He hates sweet. Sweet doesn't get the job done. So he's trying to get a little fire burning in me. Then we did the technique. Then I actually did it the way he wanted me to with that fire in the belly and that rough and tumble. So I was a little cranky. And I actually thought for a while that my husband liked him just because he picked on me. But that was only half of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that means he likes you if he picks on you. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, nice, nice. <laughs> so then you hooked up with Sagung 2006. Where did the journey take you with him? Uh, did you have him out? Did you go and train with him? Yes, all of we had him out every single year for our winter camp in December that we hold. And then we also had him come out, you know, at a couple of our belt tests, which are usually the bigger ones are in June. We, we have several different events every year, and we try to have him out as often as possible. We've got to travel with him. Rebecca got to go to Banderas, Texas, and and teach at one of the events you know that he was present at. We traveled to Mr. Sepulveda's event in New York and got to actually travel you know with Seagung. It was just great. I think that's where we met in Banderas with the with the 2014 camp. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, it was great camp, that. Um, probably our 2018 event when we had the four horsemen, as we call them, of American Kenpo here. And Seagung took the 10th along with Mr. Wedlake. And then we had Mr. Sepulveda and Mr. White here to celebrate because they had taken the 10th that same year as well. That was, you know, we, we'd been running probably for about 15, 14 years. We'd been running events every year and we had never had as many sleepless nights you know, <laughs> bitten down fingernails because we wanted it to be perfect. We yeah. wanted to be as perfect as possible because those were those were our heroes. Really, yeah. that was that was a real. It's like the moonshot of our career having those four men kind of standing up and and Seagung and and Mr. Wedlake got to be there and his first teacher ever uh, got his judo teacher Carol. She got to give him his tenth degree black belt and she was very old and and at the time uh, she didn't make she didn't live very much longer after that. So it was like some perfect moments that we got to have with with our mentors. It was awesome. Nice. Uh, how did that concept come about? That uh... Where did the name the four horsemen obviously came from the four seniors that were there? White was the the pale horse because he's you know it's the white one, and then we had all the rest of them. But wanted them to kind of get together, and we were trying to talk Seagung into you know taking the tenth, which was not an easy discussion. If you know Seagung Labounty, yeah, he, yeah. He never do it, never do it. Same as Mr. White and everybody. After after some communication, and Mr. White talked with him, and Mr. Sepulveda was instrumental. Mr. Labounty said, well, "I'll do it if these other." 
gentlemen are going to do it and stand up with me, I'll do it. It was kind of that push where they they stood up as, as brothers in, in the art together. I was just fortunate enough to be able to host the event and try to do everything I could to make it to honor them properly because, man, they, they we walked the roads that they paved. If you had to impart some wisdom or you use inspirational quotes to some of our listeners, there's always one that I always come back to. One of Sigung's one was, not me, not today. That's always a classic. I, I love that. I came back and I drilled that into all my students when we got back. Inspirational quotes that you can share with us and our listeners. The biggest one for me is the not me, not today. I mean, Sigung ended many of his seminars with that. And he talked a lot about the, the work that he did as a police officer working in sex crimes against women and children. And you talk about that mindset, you know, and then, and it empowered me a lot because I'm not the, the tallest person out there. I'm not the most muscular person out there, but if I have the mindset that I need, I can survive anything that comes my way. And having been a victim of abuse, having been a victim of those things in the past, I like to add that not ever again. So not me, not today, not ever again. This is uh, the Journey Book Three by Tom Bleeker. It's it's focusing on American Kempo's next generations. But one of my favorite parts in the book, my copy signed by Seagung Stephen Labounty. Forward is dedicated to him, and it says this work is dedicated to Seagung Stephen Labounty, Senior Grandmaster Ed Parker's premier iron worker for his nearly six decades of tireless and steadfast contributions to the art of American Kempo and its community. So we're not only are we proud. Get my wife in this book, but we're also thrilled that our lineage and our instructors honored at the beginning. The last thing that I would probably want to add would be whenever we bow on and off the mats, we say uh, spirit, honor, discipline, us to represent our Seagung and something he always said. We asked him if he had standing orders. We knew the time was getting closer and we might not have him around much longer. I said, hey, do you have standing orders for me, Seagung? What would you have me do above all else? And he said, Train with spirit, honor, and discipline. That's why we have our students say that when they bow on and off the mat as a respect for honoring of those, those wishes of our teacher. We wanted to make sure that's forefront in our students' minds so they always know when they come onto the training area and when they leave it that it's, it's special. It's a sacred place where, where we want to make sure we give our very, very best and, and don't bring anything onto the mats that doesn't belong there. Sifu John Sepulveda. Remembering my friend of over 50 years, Stigun Stephen Labounty. I first met him in San Jose at Tracy's Kempo Karate in 1964. I was in one of his classes in the back row in awe of the presence he commanded. The classes were always rough and tough, and you always left with a feeling of accomplishment. As years passed, we developed a great friendship on and off the mat. We traveled throughout the States and Europe, conducting seminars and training camps. His legacy of his style and commitment to sharing what he loved will forever be remembered. One of his famous sayings that's still used today and will be forever, not me, not today. Louis Siga, you are missed. Sensei Pete Valdez. My first meeting with Sigan Labani and his of guys, I was introduced to him through Sifu David Jimenez. 
which at the time I believe was the chaplain of the National Chinese Kempo Karate Association that Sigma Bounding was, was his organization. It was like I would say in the mid, mid-80s somewhere that we'd go through several training camps up in the hills, in the sequoias. Again, I didn't have an instructor at the time, so Sifu Jimenez was kind of my go-to guy that anytime they'd have training sessions or camps, it would be through Sigma Bounty, Marty Zanenovich, and all those guys. Back in those days, I believe that's when I got to connect with all of them. And yeah, these camps were pretty, pretty intense. Well, they were a lot of fun anyway, back in the day when we were going through all the you know, sparring all the time and techniques. And I think a lot of the, the training that we did was in regards to Sigong law enforcement. So we do repelling, how to enter homes or areas where just kind of different tactics that that he would implement when we were doing our training with them. So it was pretty cool. It was pretty intense. We were just doing that kind of training with them. The training camps were just different, right? I mean, I was used to kind of the outdoorsy kind of training up in the hills, running through the hills, Bushido training in the meadows, going over his staff set and sparring. And his camps were just a little bit different, only in the fact that, you know, there were certain standards, protocol, definitely a pecking order in a sense of, um, you know, where you kind of stood. I want to say I was probably a second or third degree black belt at the time that I met Seagong Labani, but a lot of fun none, nonetheless. You know, I think Seagong's was everybody, a lot of people had white uniforms. And if, you're, if your uniform was clean and ironed and pressed and starched and you look good and uh, he just wasn't happy that it's like, oh no, your gi looks way too clean. So, you know, we we're always in the dirt, sparring, jump in the lakes, get back out, do your forms. It was just that kind of mentality. And again, it was nothing that I was, it was strange to me. Those are just kind of the things that we did back in those days. You know, I just remember apparently you weren't supposed to eat unless he ate first, which, I, you know, I, I didn't know any of that. And a lot of it wasn't disclosed. It was just kind of whispered. But, you know, everybody brought sack lunches because that was part of the training, right? You bring your own meals. You eat your own food. But the group, the black belt, the, the instructors, Singer Labani, basically Tom Kelly, Frenchie, um, of course, all Alan Anderson, all the guys that were under Seagong, we got to eat the food that they got to eat. They just got to eat a lot more of it. <laughs> they were big guys. I remember my son at the time was probably 10 or 11 years old, went up to a camp and, you know, Sigal Labani and, and Seabock Tom Kelly, you know, just huge fo- focal figures in the camp, along with Dennis Kanatzer. And I remember, I think that might have been one of the camps where um, John Sepulveda was a guest instructor at the time. But even at the end, we were taking photos and my son was just a little guy and they just picked him up. His feet hanging off the ground about three feet in between these two guys. I have that picture. Seabog Tom Kelly was hilarious when he would teach. I mean, he just had some one-liners while he was teaching that were just amazing, funny. He kept you in stitches. And then, of course, Seabog, Seabog Labani, all we would do was spar. It seemed like we'd run up hills, have people jump at us, you know, from behind trees and fight your way out of them and, or do a technique or whatever you could. It was crazy in that realm as far as the hills were concerned. And then when we do other trainings like in Nevada, we'd all go have dinner 
uh, I would say on a we it started on a Friday, Saturday night. We go have dinner after all day of training through guest instructors, but then we'd go out to dinner, come back on a full stomach after they've had their you know drinks, uh, alcoholic beverages of their of their choice, come back to the dojo, and then we do candlelight sparring. <laughs> I would think we were done, but no, everybody go ahead and put your keys back on. We're stuffed. And we're going through technique line or we're doing candlelight sparring in the dark and just calling out random people. And yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was definitely, um, good times to remember. I was in my mid twenties, late twenties, early thirties at at that, at that point. So, you know, you're still, still enjoying that kind of training. Sigan just had a certain aura about him. His personality was just second to none. And, you know, when he spoke, everybody listened. Very respectful of Sigong. I remember even when he was at the dojo at, at our last, I want, want to say in 2014, 15. But after he had a full day of seminars, the next day we had a one-on-one with him, me and uh, Sipa David Jimenez, and I have it all on video. He allowed me to videotape it. My son was there. But I remember getting on the mat, we're doing uh, Sakwani showing us a, a staff set. And apparently I, I was chewing gum. Um, I got in the habit of chewing gum when I was teaching cardio kickboxing for um, an organization years prior. And it just seemed that was the only thing that could keep my my voice and my throat moist as I'm instructing and cueing. So I still had that habit. So anyway, we're going through our training. He goes, Mr. Valdez, are you chewing gum? And uh, everything just kind of, me and Sifu just kind of stopped. And Sifu Jimenez starts laughing. And I just said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, you know what to do with it, right? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. So I bow off the mat and go dump. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, typically, I mean, if he would have you do that, he'd be having you run laps, do push-ups, doing, you know, short form three in reverse. He'd be doing something. He he always had a certain um, aura about him and, and it was a genuine respect. Sigal Labani was just an amazing person. His his laughter and just his presence was something that we just enjoyed being around, obviously, as people that have followed him. Chapter of his organization that he had. Loved him dearly, as Sifu Jimenez would attest to, right? There were definitely a couple of stories there that those are the only two really that come to mind when we were up in the hills. And then, of course, just asking me if, you know, if I had gum in my mouth, <laughs> like a little kid. It's like, oh, uh, yes, sir. Uh, spit it out, please. So anyway, just a very special person other than his martial arts uh, legacy that that he's left behind. But just as a person in general, loving people, enjoying people, and just being very, very sincere in his conversations with me, Sipu Jimenez. It was just good knowing that man, who he was. So as you know, that's my little just in knowing who he was. I have many, many pictures of him still in my office today because he meant that much to us. It meant that much to me. I guess I could say consider myself very fortunate, and I'm thankful and blessed to have met the man that we call Sino Lamani. Getting to see him when we all met in uh, Arizona when they had the. Uh, when they gave him his tent with Lee, Lee Wedlake and uh, Johnson Paul, Bob White, everyone was there. And we got to see him give 
one of his last seminars as a ninth and again as his tenth and being called out, Mr. Valdez, can you come out here? And I think I was with one of his black belts. His name is Scooter. And he had me do a judo throw or he had Scooter do a judo throw on me. I honestly can't remember now, but it was just, you know, nice being there in the midst of that. So, no, I, I think more than stories, it was just the fact that I was able to be around him, the presence that he had, not only as a martial artist, but as a dear friend. Sigung Stephen Labounty, R.I.P., remembers his student Seabock Tom Kelly, R.I.P., in their early days. Recorded by Peter Taz at Lee Wedlake's Kempo Camp in Banderas, Texas, 2014. Through those years, he was married, he had a daughter. We got the Kempo bug bite, as they say. And when I moved out of Santa Rosa, went down to Fresno to open a school from a former classmate of mine, he ended up coming down. We stayed in a, not exactly a hotel that he, or a motel that you call a motel, but we were pretty young and stupid. And still in all, we decided that we're going to do Kempo. We're going to have a school. And we, we would stay there at night and we'd do our dojo stuff during the day. And yeah. we, that's kind of the basic start. The next phase of my life and our life together was that when Ed Parker kind of came into our life, we knew of him. You know, we had seen him at tournaments, of course, talked to him. He, the system wasn't really started then, not the system that you know. Now, he's in the middle of, or he was in the beginning stages of it. Tommy, Seabach, Mr. Kelly, was so interested and so analytical that he would sit there and take copious amounts of notes on everything that Mr. Parker said. Or for that matter, anybody else that had any note. We fought all the time in every tournament we could so we could make a name for ourselves. Thing was, is that after a while, there's no money. We were terrible businessmen. We were just passionate, passionate people, you know, to do the art. My student Gary Swan came in after he got out of the military. He kind of became part of the unholy or holy three, whichever way you prefer to look at it. Basically what that was is that we were just kind of wild and crazy people. We cut a lot of years out of here. The whole martial arts industry changed, became a sales program, almost like a dance school. You know, this is how you can make yourself a beautiful dancer or whatever. He got involved in it because our school in Fresno was failing. I was a terrible bit. So he got involved in it. He went down to uh, Paso, Texas at one part. And they were working from 10 in the morning to 10 at night. One of his students, Richard Plantis, who was a blue belt at the time, maybe a purple belt or something like that, followed him. They were Del Paso. That's where he started to blossom. He was always a tough guy. He was always a hard worker. He was always, he didn't care. And he would fight the street. We used to, we had fight bar fights in Santa Rosa and the bars in Santa Rosa. The Oakland Raiders used to come up there for their summer practice. We didn't fight any of the Raiders, you know. <laughs> But there was also certain people that, you know, just didn't like or they didn't like us or whatever. Called me one day and he said, I got to get out of here. Yeah, I was in El Paso. It wasn't so much he didn't like El Paso. 
Las Cruces. I think he might have lived in Las Cruces for a little bit. But he had to get out of this, this, this mill, this muddy mill, because although he liked the money, you know, it wasn't what he wanted. I had just gone to work for Mr. Parker. Mr. Parker knew him, knew he was tough, knew he was a good fighter. I said, you know, Ed, Tom, uh, we called him Ed in those days. You know, Ed, Tommy uh, Kelly's down there, and he's looking for a job. Because you tell him to come up here, I'll give him a job. I said, okay, well, I said, he's got another guy named Richard Plant. I said, he goes, well, I'm not taking nobody else. Nobody else. He wants to come up fine, but he, I'm not going to pay anybody else. That's how Mr. Plant has got started, Mr. Park. But anyway, Mr. Kelly, tournament thing just blossomed. And he was one of the most feared guys out there in, in, in the circuit. Mr. Parker loved him because he was also carrying the Parker name, or the Parker system, rather, all over the place. And he was so dedicated to Parker. He was dedicated to the students at West L.A. He got in trouble, but he was, re- he was very strict. Elvis's wife came in one time for a lesson. What happened was is that she wanted to wear a black uniform. And Tom Kelly said, no, you can't wear a black uniform. You're not, you haven't been in the art long enough. Only people that have been there, I can't remember the, the level, wear a black uniform. She goes, well, I want to wear a black uniform. He said, no. The eldest is white. So she goes, Priscilla, she goes to Ed Parker, and she says, well, he wanted to wear a black uniform. He gets on the phone, talks to Mr. Kelly. He says, listen, you got to let her wear a black uniform. He said, Ed, that's not the rule. If we break the rule for her, we got to break it for other people. And he's talking to the boss here. Called me up and he said, I'll, I'll put it in a nice way. He said, I, did I just screw the moose? I go, well, no, you did worse than that. You know, you stepped on his toes and then you screwed him. <laughs> you know? He goes, oh, geez. Mr. Parker comes roaring into the office that day. And he goes, I'm so mad. I'm so mad. He says, Kelly, all the time, Kelly. I said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And there was another guy named Saul Esquivel. Old timers. He's probably somebody like a member. Saul Esquivel was a Hawaiian guy. He's probably he wasn't a big fan of Tom Kelly because Tom Kelly used to beat him mercilessly. <laughs> so, I mean, he did. He really did. We had these managers. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I'm running a school out in the valley, and Tommy and I get together, and we're right in the Chinese restaurant. And he goes, I'm worried. I think the yeah, dad's really mad at me, and so on and so forth. He said, what should I do? I said, here's what you do. When you come to the next manager's meeting, eat a little crow. I'll try. He walks in. He, he couldn't find a crow. <laughs> he just walked and said, Ed, I got something to say. I went, I, 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 I'm not even Jewish, but I turned Jewish and said, oh, I. And Mr. Parker turned around to him and said, what do you got? What's this? And he's doing it in front of people, which was always a no-no. You know, he's doing it in front of the other members of the class. So I got an issue. He says, I did what you taught me to do. He goes, I know. I'm going get in class. That was the end of it. From that time on, Tom Kelly fought his heart out for him. And Mr. Parker sent him over to England. He sent him over, team over there, Ron Marchini, uh, I don't remember, the tip of that. I mean, Bob White's idea, you don't know, I can't remember. And they all went over to Ireland, and, and Kelly's over there sweeping these Irish guys and English guys, taking them down and punching Benny Jet or Kiedis was on the team. First time I ever saw in competition on film a jump flying spin back kick. He caught this Irish guy, and he blasted. And the crowd went nuts. They said, "Here's Kelly sweeping guys. Here's all these guys." Ron Marquini was the other guy who was a good fighter. I tell you these little stories not because that you need to know them, because they don't mean that much to you. But you have to understand 
that we have a lineage, you have a history. Probably most of the people in this crowd right never never met Ed Parker either. He died in 1990. Okay. So Mr. Kelly died, as we know, last year, two years ago, whatever it was. Two years, was it? Two years? Yeah. You know, you didn't meet him either. I guarantee you, if he's here right now, he'd be calling me boo-boo. And he'd be calling me. He'd always come up and he'd go, you know, they have stuff for this. <laughs> you can put, I'll just use the word dong. You can put cow dong and vinegar on there. You know, he was just, he was unmerciful. But he had that sense of humor. The problem was, he also had a terrible temper at times. He, as he got ill, ill-er, he didn't really take care of himself. But his legacy is left to his students. Bert Escandarian, to my joy, uh, from uh, some kids, I can never remember the town. And his group of joining AKTS. It's one of the wisest things they ever did. And so now he's in the AKTS. He's a Kelly student. If you're watching Luke, and we usually get a chance to see him, if you watch his students, Unfortunately, his, his wife passed away this uh, last year, and and she was a wonderful lady, but they all are Kelly students. And, and you take, like, big Mr. Wedlake, Mr. White, you take all these guys, and say, look, and they say, oh, that, that's somebody, that's Kelly, maybe. Okay, does this matter to any of you? It should. Yeah. Not because you didn't know him, but because some of the things you're doing, he admitted, he was the one that started the kicking set. I hate the kicking set. I hate it because I can't do it. I can't do it because I don't like it, but I can do that. And he would always, and then, he, then the set two came out, and he would always come up and he'd say to me, you got to do the kicks. I don't got to do nothing. I'm your senior. You got to listen to me. And he goes, oh, boo-boo, now don't get all upset now. <laughs> he got me by my chin like this. He said, don't get upset, boo-boo. And I'd say, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I can't help but laugh. Your legacy is through not only your teacher, your teacher's teacher. On up the line, through me, through Mr. White, through Mr. Sullivan, obviously through Mr. Wedlake, and we all come back to Mr. Park. That's our legacy. Tom Kelly was one of those standouts. He was a good man. And the days in the 60s, 60s were terrible. We were dopers. We were drunkards. And is that worse? Depends. Tears your body up a lot faster. But at some point, You've got to grow up. And he did, and I did. We did it because we love the art so much. We helped each other. We supported each other. I wouldn't let him in my house one time. I made him sleep in the car because I wouldn't. I, I had two young kids at that. And so he slept in the car the whole day, and I walked out, and he's barfed all over the street. <laughs> he said, do you really need jealous ass singer? Yes. The reason was is that was his first turn. Finally, one day, he, uh, Mr. Parker had told him about the LDS, the, the Mormon church. He had Mr. Mr. Kelly was curious about it, so he asked Mr. Parker about it. That was the evolution of his conversion to Christianity. I mean, he was born a Christian. He might have been baptized a Christian, but what it was is what your parents did. I'm a Catholic. We baptized him at birth. But he, and he would give, we go back to work. I don't want to get that. Because it was, it was funny a lot of the time. But what happened one day, he just, something, he he was in Kansas. He was sad, down, and he went to this one church, and he never left. The last time he left that church, when we, he was taken out. Uh, actually, they cremated his body. When Professor Schwann and I went to his his final uh, his final resting, 
I couldn't go. I, I went. I said, they said, well, you got to go to the cemetery. I didn't know they had cemeteries in the prenatal. This is how much I know. Nonetheless, is that Mr. Swan and I were there. It was a kind of a long walk for he and I, you know, because of all the memories and everything else. You don't know Tom Kelly. You've never met him. Maybe some of you know. I guarantee you some of the moves you're doing, he was one of the ones that started. He's the one of the ones that beat enough of us around to make us keep that fighting spirit inside us. And he loved people. You know, if he hated you, he really told you he hated you. Sometimes he'd come up and say, I don't like that guy. I said, well, he's too tall. <laughs> what? He's too tall. He's just too tall. I don't like him. I don't like him. They go, they're stupid. He picked on some. Don't give me the, we had eating contest. I don't even go there. <laughs> so thank you for listening because he was important to me and a very important person to me and to Mr. Schwann and to all of our lineage, Mr. Wedlake, Mr. Sepulveda and all those stuff. They kind of grew up with him too, you know, in a certain way. You have a history. What makes you stay in thing? Do you know who your grandma is? Do you know who your grandpa is? Do you know who your auntie is, your uncle? Do you know who that is? That's your family. You don't have to like them. They may be, you know, maybe they kicked you out of the will a long time ago, so you hope they die. But they're still in your family. Yes. So anyway, just give a thought. You never saw his face. You never talked to him. You never had a seminar with him. But believe me, he's in you whether you like it or not. Okay? Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you bring the curtain down on it part two of this poignant two-part episode we extend our sincerest appreciation for the continued presence in honoring the life and legacy of Sigung Stephen Labani. the narratives and reflections shared today have taken us further into the profound impact Sigung Labani made on the martial arts community showcasing the enduring influence of his indomitable warrior spirit before we conclude we wish to express our gratitude to a group of esteemed individuals who have joined us today to honour Sigung Labani's memory. Our content speakers, Gary Swan, Dee Swan, Brian Duffy, Marty Zaninovich, David Jimenez, Lee Wedlake, Sean and Rebecca Knight, Pete Valdez, John Sepulveda and Huck Planus have shared their unique perspectives, stories and memories, enriching our understanding of the profound impact Sigung Labani had on the martial arts community. Sifu Gary Swan and Simu D. Swan, as our guest hosts and speakers, have added a depth of insight that only some with a close personal connection to Zigung Labani could provide. As we wrap up this special episode of the Mind Sensei podcast, we invite you to carry forward the spirit of Zigung Labani, reflecting on his lessons, the laughter, and enduring the impact he has left on us all. Thank you for joining us on this commemorative journey. Until next time on the Mind Sensei podcast. Stay curious, stay inspired, and keep cultivating the art of self-discovery. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei podcast from Down Under. I want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. 
We also encourage you to visit our website at mindsensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site you can read blog posts, videos and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.